Good morning. Man, it's so good to see you, whether you're a part of things at our South Campus, maybe you're part of our North Campus or our online family. Uh, it could be that you are like brand new with us, haven't been here much at all, and you're wondering what in the world's going on. Uh, it is real simple. We are utterly confident that Jesus died, went to hell, rose over death, hell on the grave, victorious, and through him he offers abundant life. And we gather together to encourage each other to stay in step with Jesus, to take our next steps, because we're confident that those next steps lead to fullness of life, lead to abundant life. I promise you, no one here claims to have it all together. We're all on a journey. So if you want to go on a journey into more and more of what God has for you, this is a great place for you to be a part of and love having you. It was years ago, I can't really remember how many, that I took my then teenage son to some movie he wanted to see, don't know which one it was. You know, I was just doing the dad thing. And at the end of the movie, the credits start to roll. And what are you supposed to do when the credits roll? Get up and leave. And I got up and my son said, no, 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 dad, we got to stay. There's an Easter egg in the credits. I was very intrigued because immediately I heard Easter egg. I thought what you hide for your kids on Easter Sunday or the Easter weekend and they go and find them. And I wanted to know what my teenage son was still interested in Easter eggs and how to do it with movie credits and all that. Come to find out there was an utterly other definition of an Easter egg. See, an Easter egg is um, a message of some sort, an image, it's a feature, and it's often hidden in software and video games and movies or film. It's become very, very much the end thing. Like, Disney is very famous for this, like connecting their movies together. So in their cartoon, Hercules, Hercules, because of the legend of Hercules, wears a lion headdress for a season. And if you look very carefully, the lion in Hercules, the headdress is actually Scar from the Lion King. I know some of you are going, mind blown right there. You wanted to check me out. You can't do it. You got to do it later on your phone. Just trust me, that's what it is. Listen, that was in a day when Disney was fun. I'm just going to tell you parents, grandparents now, Disney of today is not the Disney of old. I'm not telling you to have nothing to do with Disney. I'm saying they have an agenda. And so you can't assume that everything they produce today is what your kids, my grandkids need to be watching. You need to be very involved in what's going on because there's very creative and subtle ways that unrighteousness is being pushed. And Disney has been a part of that. An Easter egg can be something that's hidden and has to be unlocked. That's what's normally true in video games and software. Or it can just be a detail. A subtle image that if you're really not looking for it, believe it or not, you will miss it. The account of the crucifixion of Jesus, I believe, contains several Easter eggs. Things that maybe you've noticed but not thought about their significance, or it's likely you haven't even noticed those things. And the Gospel of Matthew actually contains all the Easter eggs of the, Easter, of the, Christmas, uh, the crucifixion story. So you don't mind, maybe grab your Bible. Matthew, the 27th chapter is where we're going to be. If you didn't bring a Bible at our physical campuses, there's one underneath your chair or the chair in front of you, you are always welcome to take that Bible home with you. Just put your name in the front of it because there are thousands of them around our community that look exactly the same. So you'll want to keep yours. We want you to take it, use it. Maybe you want to look at the text later. We're on page 834 in that. If you are on our online campus, um, there's an icon you can click. You can turn to Matthew 27 on that icon. Now, while you're doing that, while you're getting your sermon notes ready, I do encourage you to write down some um, notes, to jot down some, some thoughts, some ideas. Not just fill in the blank. There might be some things you're not sure about. 
Listen to me. You need to test everything I say by the word of God. You don't need to just trust me. When you stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, he, you're not going to get to say, well, Pastor David said. He's going to say, well, what did I say? And so you need to check what I say by what he said, and you always go with what he said. Amen? And so we want to look at it there. So sometimes when you're writing down notes and ideas, it's something that you need to go look at at a later time. While you're getting all that ready, let me tell you, in two weeks, say two weeks. In two weeks, we are going to celebrate. Easter. We're going to join with believers all over the world. Now, I understand that we are people who celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every week when we come together. We should do it every day in our own lives. But there is one event in human existence that far exceeds any other event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It deserves, in my opinion, a weekend set aside that we can meditate on it significant and orient our lives around it in a fresh way. I realize that our culture has co-opted Easter in a lot of ways and tried to push us away from that. I know we make it about new spring outfits and things like that and the other kind of Easter egg hunt. Listen to me, I'm all for that. If you want to buy a new outfit, have at it. I'm probably not going to do it, just not a big deal to me. But we're going to do Easter egg hunts with my grandkids. That's great, but that's just all secondary. Jesus died. My opinion, he went to hell. And he overcame death, hell, and the grave. He's victorious, and he offers us victory. He offers us hope in this life and in the life to come. That is why we celebrate in two weeks. One of the ways we celebrate is we offer hope to others who need that. The reason you are where you are is because God wants to use you to take what he's placed in you and offer it to others. The good news is, he who is in us, Jesus, when you offer him to somebody else, you don't lose him in your life. There's plenty of him to go around for everyone. So if all seven and a half billion people on planet Earth accept him, you don't lose out on any of Jesus. Everything he has for your life, you still have. And so we can offer what he has to others. One of the ways you do that is just invite people to join you on Easter weekend. They will come and visit on that weekend when no other weekend they will come. And listen, what we have, they long for. They long for peace that transcends understanding. Peace that guards our hearts and mind no matter the circumstances in life. So on Easter weekend, we are going to have seven services at two locations. We start all of our weekends on Plus Thursday. So when you're working or you're out of town, you can still engage in the Word of God. We will do that. We will have a Saturday service that's special that we don't normally do at both of our campuses. And we'll have two services on Sunday morning at both of our campuses. And we will be online Saturday and Sunday. Plenty of opportunities. Listen. He is risen. Are you getting it? He is risen. And that reason and that reason alone is why we can have peace in this world. And that is told to us, believe it or not, in the Easter egg details of the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27 is Matthew's account of the cross. We know from the gospel writers it wasn't on Good Friday that Jesus was arrested. It was actually the night before on Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane. But it was in the wee hours of the morning. You know those hours that you don't want to know about? Do you know that there's like two twos on your clock, right? And we only want to know about one of the twos. But it was in the other two o'clock or somewhere thereabout that he's taken before the high priest. And it's in the early hours of the morning, the 5 a.m., the 6 a.m., when people were having their first cup of coffee that he was tried before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Then Mark tells us 
that it was about the third hour, notice that phrase there, third hour when they crucified him. Just a little side note. There are skeptics of the scripture that say that one of the reasons they're skeptical is because of contradictions in the Bible. And they believe one of the contradictions is in the account of the crucifixion. In John's gospel, it says it was the day of preparation of Passover week. And about the sixth hour, Pilate said to the Jew, here's your king. And they say, well, how is it that Pilate could sentence Jesus at the sixth hour? And Mark says he was crucified on the third hour. Makes no sense. Contradiction. Wrong. In that time, there was actually two ways of denoting time, the Jewish way and the Roman way. Still true in Israel today. So if I ask you about Sabbath, which would be Saturday, and ask you what time Saturday started, you'd say midnight, Friday, midnight, Saturday begins. That's the Western way of keeping time. Absolutely true. However, in Israel, they don't start Sabbath celebration at midnight on Saturday. They actually start at sundown on Friday, and they go from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday because that was the religious way among the Jews to honor the Sabbath. Same idea in the first century. In the Jewish way of denoting time, they started at sunup, about 6 a.m. So the third hour would be 9 a.m. Tough math, I know, but you got there, right? In the Roman way, which we adopted in the Western world, they started at midnight. The sixth hour would be about 6 a.m. I would challenge that Mark is keeping time, denoting time by the Jewish way, John by the Roman way. We know that Jesus was tried and sentenced about 6 a.m., and he was crucified at 9 a.m. Now, look at verse 45, Matthew 27. From the sixth hour, so remember, he was crucified on the third hour, but from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. So for the first three hours, third hour to the sixth hour, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., it is normal daylight. It was during the daylight that Jesus looked at uh, the fa- cried out to the Father when they crucified him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was during the daylight that a thief, one of the ones crucified along with Jesus, turned to him and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. But then at the sixth hour, at noon, at the brightest time of the day, what happened? The lights go out. Now, I can't tell you that if it happened like an eclipse where maybe the sun started to be covered gradually like we would know, or if it happened in an instant. The text doesn't tell us. Either way, you can imagine for a moment the freak-out factor that was happening in the first century when that happened. The land turned pitch black for three hours. Now, let's be honest. We don't talk about that much, do we? Some of you are thinking right now, didn't even know that that happened. Others of us like, well, yeah, I kind of knew it happened, but I really haven't thought about it. Let's do this. Let's pause. Let's not gloss over this too quickly. God chose to make the world utterly black for the last three hours Jesus was on the cross. Why? I don't think it was just a coincidence. I don't think it was a surprise. I don't think God was watching over his son on the cross, and then at noon the lights went out, and he said, hey, what's up? I don't think he turned to his angel team that was in charge of this whole event and said, hey, hey, who planned that? Who coordinated that? One little timid agent will raise his hand and say, hey, good call. Good call. That's a great effect at a time like that. You're saying, well, of course not. The detail may be small, like an Easter egg, but it doesn't mean it's insignificant. God purposed that the land would become utterly black for three hours. Why? I would challenge this because darkness is how we feel. 
I mean, come on. Most of us have had those times where we couldn't sleep. And we're up at that other time on the clock, right? The 2 a.m. and the 3 a.m. Have you noticed that the things we deal with in the light are much more intense in the darkness? The worries, the anxieties, the stresses. I mean, yeah, we feel them in the day, but at the night, there's a weight that is upon them. We all know what this is. We understand feeling lost and on our own and how intense it is in the darkness. We understand the insecurity of the moment and the uncertainties about the future. Maybe that's why in verse 46, look at it, Jesus about the ninth hour cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you, look at the word, forsaken, come on. Is that not what darkness feels like? Does not darkness feel like forsaken? It's what it feels like in our existence, abandoned, disowned, on our own, lack of peace, full of fear, forsaken. Hear me, Jesus gets it. He not only gets it at an intellectual level, he felt it. For three hours, he felt the darkness. He felt what was going on all around him. And finally, trying to communicate what that was, he uses the words of the 22nd Psalm and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And some of you are going, didn't know that happened. So you're saying Jesus died, darkness, and all of a sudden the zombies started coming out of the tombs, right? Don't think they were zombies, but yeah, something happened. Another Easter egg. You got to come back next week to talk about that one, by the way. Verse 54, when the centurion and the other soldiers who were keeping watch over them saw, saw the earthquake, saw what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was. But they didn't know that the was was going to become an is. Because they would say later, this is the Son of God. Now can you imagine the scenario for a moment? Darkness descending and has been weighing on people for three hours. Jesus feels what all of humanity feels. He feels the weight, he feels the struggle, and then he uses these words, this one sentence from the 22nd Psalm that communicates the darkness as well as any. And then, after that, he cries out again. The earth shakes, saints come out of the grave, the curtain in the temple is torn. But you know what else happened? The lights came back on. Remember, earlier it says in verse 45, it was darkness in the land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. But then verse 46 says it was at the ninth hour that he cried out. Now, up until this week, when I looked at verse 50, when it says he cried out again in a loud voice, I assumed it was a cry of agony, a cry of despair, a cry of anguish. But I don't think so. The psalmist, throughout the book of Psalms, there's a phrase. You see it in the 32nd Psalm. Be glad, notice the phrase, in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, 
all you upright in heart. See, I wonder, guys, I can't prove this to you, but I wonder. Darkness is on the whole land. Jesus is feeling the darkness, and I have a thought about what that's like, but I wonder if it's different than what we thought. Like Jesus cried out in despair. He's feeling the weight that we feel, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God heard his cry, and he answered his prayer, and in that moment, turned on the lights. I wonder when he cried out in anguish, feeling all that we feel, and think, everything is forsaken. God, are you listening to us? And God answered him, and he turned on those lights in the moment. And the last thing Jesus saw was light eradicating the darkness. And something welled up inside of him, and it brought such joy to his heart that he let out a shout of praise like no one has ever done. And he cries out, to tell us die, to tell us die, it is finished. I am victorious. And he knew in that moment he had accomplished what the Father wanted. And he gave up his spirit and said to Satan, here I come, and I'm gonna take back the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Come on. I don't know for sure that's how it played out, but I know the scripture says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Question. Whose joy did he focus upon to endure the cross? I would challenge that the love of God is so great and so grand that the whole time he was on the cross, those last three hours, not just feeling physical darkness, but feeling the spiritual weight of all of humanity upon himself, what kept him going was knowing that when he finished what it was he had to finish, he was going to offer to billions of people, including us, everything he designed for us to have. It was our joy that gave him joy to enable him to do her cross. All you have to do is like be a parent a little bit, and you've experienced some of this. Even a semi-healthy parent finds joy in their kid's joy. One of the most joyous Christmases I had with my kids, had lots of them, but the one I remember, and this is going to show my age, was the year of the Nintendo 64. Now, you got to realize, back in the day, I believe toy manufacturers purposely underproduced toys to create a rush on that toy and to heighten the price and somehow create a hype all around that toy. They did it on several things. The first being the Cabbage Patch doll. This year, it was the Nintendo 64. You could not get a hold of one. My boy wanted one bad. It's like, Dad, Nintendo 64. I was like, I know, man. I can't get a hold of one. I went from Lubbock to the Dallas area for an event. This was in um, early November. And I decided along with another guy one night that we were just going to hit the stores when the truck showed up. We called all these stores in the Metroplex. When the truck showed up, we were going to try to grab a Nintendo 64 right off a truck in that two hours, three hours in the morning. My buddy got one. I did not. I thought, God, I'm more spiritual than he is. How did he get one? <laughs> and I'm not. We walked through the airport. I remember where people offered him four times the list price for that Nintendo 64 he was carrying right there. I would have sold it in a heartbeat. I would have said, man, well, God, we'll get another one. Four times would do a lot. But anyway, he didn't sell it. But I had one other trick. There were people in our church, and I knew one of them managed a Walmart. 
And I went to him, and I said, dude, I need you to do me a solid. I said, I'm not asking for a discount. I'm not asking for anything. I'm not asking for you to give it to. I'm asking that when the truck comes in and you know one's on there, you call me. And I will be there before you unload it. And I just need you to give me a chance to buy it. And he did. And like right before the Thanksgiving rush, I got a hold of a Nintendo 64. And I started feeling so joyful in my spirit. Because I knew what Christmas was going to be like. Because I kept telling the boy, you can't get one, man. You can't get one. Now, I will have a confession to you. I hooked up the Nintendo 64, um, <laughs> like right after Thanksgiving. So he would put him to bed, and I'd play Nintendo 64. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it, but like Christmas morning when he, when he, when he opened it, we turned it on. He's like, Dad, how did Mario get so many stars? I'm like... Like, dude, you got a special version of a Nintendo 64, came preloaded with stars. <laughs> it's like I did it under the guys, I had to teach them how to play. I, I can remember, I can remember Christmas Eve, because we, we open our gifts on Christmas morning, because that's when righteous people do it. And, um, <laughs> and I remember not being able to sleep. Like, I was giddy. I don't get giddy, but I was giddy with joy at just the anticipation of his joy of something that he would have. Hear the word of the Lord. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Listen to me. Jesus died so that we could live in joy. See, I, I think some of us, to be honest, I'm one of them, can feel guilty about being joyful. We can think the world is difficult, the world has fallen. I get it, but it, it's interesting when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is despair. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is to mourn. There are times to mourn, but we can still have an overriding sense of joy even in that. And one of the ways we worship God, believe it or not, is to actually live in the joy that he paid the greatest price to offer. He felt joy. He had our joy in mind when he was enduring the cross. How else could we honor him except to live in that? and to live in what he gives. It's in another Easter egg. Remember, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Now, for many of us, we, we don't really see the significance of that. The Jewish temple was the center of all activity about God. It was this massive complex, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It took 47 years for them to actually build this place. They had these massive outer courts where crowds would gather and they would offer sacrifices. But then in this, in this enormous temple, they had two parts. They had the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And they were separated by a curtain, 60 feet tall, four inches solid. Inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. I know you're thinking Indiana Jones. Don't think Indiana Jones. Think Bible, okay? The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. In it were items that talked about the power, the provision, and the protection of God. Here's what's interesting. Only one person went through the curtain once a year into the presence of God. The high priest on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of, of atonement, would get himself all prepped up for weeks trying to be as righteous as he could, put on some special garments. On the bottom of the garments were actually bells. You say, why the bells? Because if he was jingling, they knew he was still alive. If he wasn't jingling, 
Somebody's going to have to go in. Nope, they actually tied a rope around his ankle. And if he quit jingling for long enough, they tugged on the rope, but they weren't going to go in after that fool's body, right? They knew he had messed something up. See, because of sin, because of darkness, the presence of God was dreadful and fearful. Because of sin, only one person really entered into the presence of God once a year. But then at the ninth hour, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in a moment, the lights flipped on. And Jesus shouted for joy. And when he shouted, the Father grabbed that curtain, 60 feet tall, four inches thick, and he began to tear it like a child would be tearing a Kleenex, shouting he has made a way for humans to come into his presence. And so the Hebrew writer would say, therefore, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have confidence. Somebody shout confidence. Anytime I can just say, My Father, Abba, I can enter into the holy places, the holy place and the most holy place. Notice, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up through the curtain, the veil that was torn, that is through His flesh. Now, notice this. So the high priest, once a year, would go through the curtain to get into the presence of God. Now, through His flesh, through what He gave to us on the cross, anytime, any place, all the time, all day, we can come into the presence of God because we have a great high priest over the house of God. Therefore, let us with full confidence, a true heart, in full assurance of faith, let us draw near. And when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. See, because of what Jesus did, we can draw near to God. Without fear, we can come into his presence. And in his presence, he makes known to us the way we're supposed to live life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. A hallmark of living in the kingdom of God like we should is an overriding sense of joy no matter the circumstances of life. Isn't there a part of us that that feels like that's wrong? But the scripture actually commands that we be joyful always. Listen to me. Jesus died not that we would have moments of joy. Jesus died that we might live in joy. If he didn't want it that way, he wouldn't have commanded, be joyful always. You know what always means in the original language? Always, yep. It's a great translation of the word. <laughs> be joyful in all circumstances. Guys, I'll be honest with you. I struggle with this. See, what you will find in the church is when we become followers of Jesus, God deposits gifts and abilities inside of us um, that encourage the rest of us. Some people just carry parts of the kingdom more easily than the rest of us do. Like spiritual father of our church, spiritual father of mine is a guy named Don Finto. He's like almost 93 years old. He just carries joy. It's just natural for him. Like he called me when his wife of over 60 years passed away. And there was like a sense of joy in the midst of his grief. It was the oddest thing. I kept talking to him because I thought he was putting up a facade of faith. There was no facade. It was just the reality of who he was, that he grieved but with hope, as the Scripture said. It's what he carried. I don't carry that naturally, guys. I'm passionate. I'm driven. That means I can be angry. I can be motivated. 
but I struggle with joy. And I, I struggle with joyful always because there's a sense of guilt because I've been abused. I know what that feels like. I've walked with people through the most difficult situations that can happen. I've seen the fallenness of the words often. See, I would understand it if the scripture said, mourn always, be in despair always, be sad until I come back. But it doesn't, does it? It says, be joyful always. Why? Because joy is the testimony of the work of Jesus. Joy and hope are tied so close together. They're interwoven. So I kept reading 1 Thessalonians 5, and it says, be joyful always, pray continually. I contend that the two are connected. See, what if we just got radical and we just started being a people who talk to Jesus all the time? Now, it doesn't mean you have to talk out loud. Like, if you walk into a crowded elevator and start saying, dear Jesus, da-da-da-da-da-da, they're probably going to help you find a place to go to somewhere out there. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying you have to do it out loud, but you can do it in your mind. You can walk into an elevator and look at all those people and say, Jesus, maybe there's an opportunity here. You want me to share something with somebody. Maybe there's a word you want to give me. Maybe there's a prayer thing. You see what I'm saying? But I can talk to him out loud in my car. I can talk to him early in the morning. I can talk to him late at night. Even when I'm awake at the night and the darkness wants to try to overwhelm me, I can just start talking to him. What if we did this freakishly wild thing? I know some of you are saying, David, that's not real world kind of stuff. I'm going to challenge we are not people of this world. We're people in this world but not of this world. What if we started living by the principles of the kingdom that God has for us? I challenge Jesus prayed continually. And we should be of people who do it more and more in our life, and it's going to lead to joy. Give thanks always in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Stay focused on what he is doing, not on just what he's not doing. And then he prays, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Do what? whatever it is we need to live the life he's called us to live. He will do it. And if he will do it, it means you don't have to rely on yourself. So you can just relax and have joy because the Father will do it. I watch my young grandkids and, and they live with a lot of joy. I mean, I know there's moments where they have little fights and I know there's moments that they hurt themselves and cry and then mom kisses it and they're all happy again. But overall, no anxiety, no worry, no depression, none of that stuff. And I know you're saying, well, David, of course, they're little kids. Bingo. Little kids believe mom and dad will do it. What if we just started walking in the reality all the time? God, you're going to do it today. You're going to give me today my daily bread, whatever I need. I walk into any meeting. I walk into a test. I walk into deal with friends at school, whatever the case may be. I just have a knowledge that he will do it. And since he will do it, which means I'm not forsaken, I'm not on my own, and it's not up to me, I can have joy. Now, I'm not saying that means you're going to be giddy happy all the time. I understand we grieve, but we grieve with hope. I know there's sometimes we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I'll fear no evil because I know you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. I know that even through the difficulties of life, God's working in all things for my good. See, in the midst of anything in life, anything, in the midst of grief, in the midst of what is angering, in the midst of the unknowns, in the midst of the uncertainties, I can come into the Father's presence. 
And I can be confident of this, that he will do it. He is fulfilling his promises and he will fulfill all his promises in life. And because of this, I can walk with joy and give testimony to the world of the goodness of our God. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. He took upon himself our darkness so that we don't have to feel it. And the more we walk with him, the more I actually believe we can feel less and less of the darkness. It's the journey of the Christian faith. And then in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. To tell us thy, it is finished. And yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And now, with utter confidence, any time, any place, Abba, I just come before him. Abba. And I come into his presence. And there's a joy that overwhelms my heart because he will do it. Listen to me. Jesus died not so that you could have moments of joy. Jesus died so that we could live in joy. I want to honor him. I do. I want to sing his praises to the world. And one of the ways I do that is to carry the spirit of joy, the spirit of hope. Not natural for me. But the good news is I don't have to create it. I just have to stay in step with the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And so I'm going to ask to do just that. And maybe you want to join me. So why don't you bow your heads, both campuses right now, online family. Take on a posture of prayer and be really honest. What if we just confessed right now, God, I, I, I really thought that I needed to be sad more often. And I realize there's times to mourn. There's tears of intercession. But even with the tears of intercession, we weep in the night because there will be joy in the morning. There's always an overriding sense of joy. Maybe we just confess, I've taken on the wrong spirit. Forgive me, Father. And I want to take on. Not, a, not, a, not like a callousness to the needs of the world. Yeah, we mourn with those who mourn, but we rejoice with those who rejoice. I mean, I was with a family in a tragic situation just this week, and there was this dance back and forth between the sadness of losing a son way too early and the joy we have because we know where he is. It wasn't fake. It wasn't hyper-spiritual. It was reality. We can walk in that. What if we just ask God for the grace to live in more joy? To honor Jesus and what his heart was looking towards when he was on the cross. And say, Jesus, I want to honor your heart by being a man, by being a woman of joy, but I need help to do it. Would you give me grace to live in more joy in the next season of my life? If you'd ask Jesus to do that, why don't you just raise your hand right now and say, Jesus, I want grace to live in joy. I do. Now, I'm going to challenge that if you want to live in more and more joy, you've just got to ask God for grace to do this radical thing and say, I want to pray continually. 
pray continually just probably means pray more than we are right now. I think so many of us get focused on how long we pray in one sitting instead of just saying, I want to pray all through the day and maybe even throughout the night. I just want to connect. If you'd ask for grace right now to say, God, I just want to pray more and more. I just want to do this freakishly wild, utterly different kind of kingdom thing. And I just want to live hand in hand with you praying and interacting with you continually with all you want to do and I need grace to do that more and more in my life put your hand up right now and say God I want to pray continually yeah me too and there may be men and women in here I just I just feel a call to offer it that you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior on the cross what gave him the ability to endure was the possibility of offering you everything he designed you to have that's his heart. That's his heart. And I know there are some people who maybe need to grab hold of his hand. Yeah, you have to give up everything that's in your hand, and you got to give up the directions you want to go in life, and you follow his direction, and he leads you to abundance. Many of us in here have done that, but there are some that have not. And if you've never done that, I, I don't want to create an emotional moment because it's more than an emotion. It's a commitment of a lifetime. It's the greatest commitment you'll ever make, but some of you have been weighing the cost and today is your day, and you say, I want to accept Jesus' gift. I'm a sinner. I cannot fix myself. I can't save myself, but I accept what Jesus did for me. I embrace it, and I become his follower today. If that's you and you want to do it right now, be bold enough to do this. Just put your hand up in the air right now and say, Jesus, I give my life to you. Come on. Yeah, around the room. Yeah. I see, I see. I can't see the North Campus, but I know it's happening. I know online, yeah. You can put your hands down. You say, what, what do I do now? Man, you might want to come down at our physical campuses, pray with one of our prayer partners, but what you can do is you heard earlier about uh, our fast track for essentials, just the foundations of faith. I would sign up for that today, and I would sign up for our next baptism class. Father, we celebrate you. It's an odd thing to think that our spirit of joy is what brings worship to you, but I am confident it's what your word says. We agree with Nehemiah who said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We wanna be strong, not just for ourselves, we wanna be strong for our families, we wanna be strong for the people that are in our lives, we wanna walk strong, and so impart to us joy that is in you, and let it be the overwhelming, overriding, emotion of our heart and life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.